Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. Each episode will invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear, might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great backlash! And this week our guest is the voice of over 50 Scottish internationals and umpteen Scottish Cup and League Cup finals, Paul Mitchell. Welcome, Paul. Gents, good to be here. Uh, thanks for the invite and uh, I love the magazine you've chosen. Excellent. And thank you for joining us. It's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. So we've picked a, a shoot magazine from the 25th of February in 1989. And the front cover has Kenny Black of Hearts. And he's in a challenge with Tommy Burns of Celtic. And it appears that Kenny has maybe got the better of Tommy in this one. As he has got the ball at his feet and running away. Whereas Tommy sort of seems to be taking a, a tumble through midair at the time. And the text beside it says, Hearts ace Kenny Black warms up for the Bayern challenge. See our four-page special inside is the photo text. So just a few things we'll pick out about the front page. 45 pence for the magazine. It says the first and best on sale every week. And we have a, a title, Lonely Hearts. So an exclusive team group and spotlight on Britain's Euro survivors. Hearts team photo with a preview of the UEFA Cup quarterfinal versus Bayern Munich. Can't wait to get into that. The next one is Great Gaza Giveaway. So it says, win his new balls. Photo shows Gaza suited up, blowing a kiss while holding one of the new boots up for grabs. And Stoke City team, there's a team group photo inside. Uh, new PR, Reed tells all. Peter Reed of QPR. Now it took me a few seconds to work out what that was. It was like new PR is in QPR. So I don't know if you managed to get that little little bit of clever, clever um, editing from them. But anyway, Peter, Peter Reid talks about the, the club inside. Uh, it's, uh, there's also Littlewoods action, Cup action between Bristol City and Nottingham Forest and West Ham United and Luton Town. Plus, Trevor Stephen at Everton, Alan McCoy Spotlight at Rangers, Andy Dibble at Man City and Charlie Nicholas at Aberdeen. Now, interestingly, the thing I that took from this is that every individual mentioned on this front page with the exception of Peter Reid at some point played football in Scotland so I thought that was quite a, an interesting thing to start off with with that so is it anything, anything anybody wants to pick out from the front page well I can tell you it's one of the best Harps kits ever they look magnificent in that kit and if you look at Kenny Black who arguably had the biggest thighs in Scottish football <laughs> maybe even bigger by you know really short shorts I mean we're talking short shorts yeah. back in those days couple of maroon panels and you know down the side with the white socks or the maroon it, it's just it's a beautiful picture what, what strikes me Andy is I mean, this was a national magazine and there is you know a Scottish club and not you know one of the, the well-known top two mm -hmm. you know dominating the front page yeah. I'm not sure you'd get that with magazines now it's, it's, it's always great to see and it's always something I've pointed out about the magazines is 
I mean, you see it yourself on Twitter is the amount of Scottish content that's in them. Obviously, in, in you know, there's certain periods of time before this where you know Scottish players and the Scottish teams were dominant, or at least you know, but were, were doing really well. But in this, you know, it went through maybe to the the I think I think the cut off point started going downhill was after the start of the Premiership in '92, and then the coverage started getting less and less. And it was if there was coverage, it was for maybe the top two, top three teams. But I, yeah, absolutely. As, as I said there, apart from uh, who did we say? Apart from Peter Reid, everybody who's mentioned has played at Scot in Scotland at some point. And I just think that's fa fantastic. Well, you're talking about the strip strip here. We, we, there's, because as a team fought one side, we do have a look at it. But interestingly, it's a Bukta strip mm. as well, and it's it's a, unusual. For, I, I think it's an unusual Bukta logo that's on it. I had to check what that was because for me, Bukta just we have to mention them. You, you think of Hibs when you think of Bukta, but uh, it was a it's a very unusual logo with that. But it's a great strip, as you say. I think I think it was a it was a very good period for strips as well. That sort of Turn, turn of the, the, the decade there. I think later on it got a bit, and I've mentioned this before as well, when when the kits started getting, you know, bulky and big and really no form to it, it was just, it was awful. And then they started getting these garish designs on them as well. Interesting that both teams are wearing white shorts and white socks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, which, which goes to prove it, it, it is more than possible. And it, I mean, I know television likes to make things clear, but I mean, I don't, it's always the jerseys. Now, I'm surprised at the socks. I don't have a problem with teams wearing the same colour as shorts. Uh, you know, as long as the referee can distinguish. I often think different colour of socks certainly helps, re you know, referees in terms of challenges. The shorts ones has, has always mystified me. I've never seen the the need for it. And particularly which World Cup, we always, they always wanted the teams almost all in one colour. It looked like one magic marker playing another magic marker, which I never liked. Either I mean, it's a classic, it's a good looking Celtic kit um, that, that Tommy Burns is wearing, you know, the big green numbers on the shorts, as well as the Celtic way. And uh, now it's just a terrific picture. Yeah, it is a great, great action picture as well. So, we'll, we'll just uh, jump inside the magazine. And so, it's pages two and three. And the first thing we're going to look at is the editor's message. So, they say the demand for shoot is greater than ever, and they suggest that it's on sale before other magazines leading to the greater demand. In fact, many readers have not been able to buy a copy. So they suggest that you put an order in with your newsagent to be guaranteed a copy. I think that's just a bit of sales work going on there, isn't it? To try to say that, look, if, if you want a copy of this, you're going to have to go, you know, it's, it's, they're flying off a shelf, they're flying off a shelf. So I think at this point, certainly Match was the other main magazine of the time and Shoot were beginning to feel the heat from the market share they were getting at this time. The rest of the two pages is, it's the Peter Reid article here. So it says, Peter Reid vows I'll be a winner again. And there's this photo of Peter Reid in a QPR kit with, let's, let's just say, a fair head of dark hair, not a bit of grey in sight. So that sort of ages this one a bit. And, you know, as we as we like to do, we'll just look through the, the profile of Peter Reid. He was born in June 1956 in Liverpool. He started off at Bolton Wanderers between 74 and 82, making 225 league appearances. He then moved to Everton between 82 and 89, 159 appearances there. QPR for a year, made 29 appearances, moved on to Man City, Southampton, Notts County and finished up in 94-95 at Bury. Yeah, had 
13 national caps for England. He had six under 21 caps as well. And he went on to manage at Man City between 1993 and then between 95 and 2002 at Sunderland. From there as well, under 21, 1999, he managed England. Managed Leeds for a period. I don't really remember that Leeds period, 2003. 2004 to 2005 at Coventry, then he jetted over to Thailand and managed them for a year. Came back, managed Plymouth Argyle, and then went away. I think it was the the Indian Super League, Mumbai City, 2014, he managed there as well. So as a player, he won the, the second division with Bolton in 77-78. With Everton, he won two first division titles, 84-85 and 86-87. He won the FA Cup in 83-84, three charity shields, and a European Cup Winners' Cup as well in 84-85. Uh, he won the PFA Players Player of the Year that season as well. With Sunderland, he won the First Division in 95, 96 and 98, 99. So, you know, that's a pretty good CV by anyone's standards. So Peter has just moved from Everton to QPR. So on his move in the article, this is what he says. He says, my only concern is to help them fight clear of the First Division relegation zone. Colin Harvey told me that Trevor Francis has been in for me. But as I was in in the Everton team at the time, I didn't want to leave. But my situation changed soon after and I knew it was time to move on. Having passed my 32nd birthday, I didn't want to be hanging around in the reserves. Now, Reid mentioned there was talk that he's been linked up to become coach at QPR. But as far as he's concerned, he's been signed to play only. He talks about some of the other new arrivals, including Nigel Sparkman and Andy Gray, not the Scottish Andy Gray and says they are now starting to look a lot more solid. On Nigel Spackman, Nigel Spackman, there's an article on Spackman, and he says, he talks about his disappointment in leaving Liverpool, and how he didn't want to leave, but needed to be playing first-team football. And there's another little article here, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner, so this is the Andy Gray that Peter Reid was talking about. So Andy reveals that one of the reasons why he jumped at the chance to join QPR was due to his 11th-month-old daughter named China, who was born in Birmingham, but she's already spent six months in hospital due to illness. And Andy says, now I'm back in London, I can call on my mum to help with any problems with China. So as a spoiler, Peter Reid left QPR the next season and they finished in 11th place in the first division. So Peter Reid? Some some player, wasn't he? I mean, he was was the engine room for that Everton team, probably arguably the last really great Everton team in the 80s. And it's just natural, isn't it? I mean, you come to an end at a club. He obviously didn't want to move, but then you've got to spin it, you know, to make it look like it's a new opportunity. I mean, they, they were obviously trying to bring him in as a coach, but typical as a player, you always want to keep on playing and you, you think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like 32 when he moved to Queen's Park, so he had another five years or something, four or five years as well. So he, he did play in, in a, a nice little age as well, but... I remember I remember him pretty well as a as a really good player and I remember him probably mostly from QPR and Man City Everton as well sorry Everton was probably the one that I remember the most but as I said I don't remember him at Leeds United does anybody have any memories of him that season two thousand and three would that have just been after that started going wrong for Leeds Yeah it's, it's amazing how players just just start to tumble and slide and just 
you know, it's a it was a surprise to me. It just it never really registered. I think players once they fall out that certain limelight, and you know, Leeds obviously did so well for a while, and then then tumbled down. Hopefully, they're on their way back now. But yeah, it just seemed to be you know, you get attracted to the big name, but I don't think they were quite the big club that people thought they were. Yeah. So on on to the next couple of pages. Page six, actually, we're going to jump on to Dibble is better than Neville. So it's about Andy Dibble, who's at Man City. And they say Southall's the best around, but I wouldn't swap him for Andy. Now, that's the view of Man City chairman Peter Swales. Man City are claiming Andy Dibble is worth more than his international rival, Neville Southall. City manager Mel Machen says, It would be hard to put a price on him because he plays in such an important role. Dibble is only 23 and he's getting better all the time. Now, Swales reckons Dibble will go down as one of the all-time great city keepers. And he says, Andy is already as good as Joe Corrigan. He's capable of becoming as good as great men such as Frank Swift and Bert Troutman. Now, a spoiler on Andy Dibble's career. Andy Dibble was with Man City from 1988 to 1997, but he was loaned out to many teams, including, including Aberdeen, another moment that I don't remember, back in 1992 when he played five games. He was loaned to Middlesbrough, Bolton, West Brom, Sheffield United, before briefly signing for Rangers where he would play seven league games. He then bounced about from club to club before retiring in 2006. He has three Welsh caps, he played a total of 116 league games for City, with the majority of those coming in the first two seasons. So that was... uh, an eight-year period and he played 116 league games but it was the majority were in the first two so I don't I don't it's not quite worked out the way that Peter Swales and Mel Machen has thought for for Andy well he, he wouldn't be the first guy to to misdiagnose a player I mean mm-hmm. look if, if you want to go to a modern day example and he's still got time to turn it around I mean Joe Pereira came to hearts mm. you know having been at Man United for what seven years you know, brilliant goalkeeper. He's going to be the real business. They've invested so much in him. And, well, ask Hearts fans what they think of Joe Pereira. Mm. They'll, they'll tell you. And and that can be the case. You know, you can nurture talent. You can see talent. But when you get between the sticks, if you can't hack it, you're not going to make it. You know, managers. It's interesting that, that managers will often take a different tack. They won't, you know, talk up their young players just too much. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why. I mean, yeah, I remember Andy Dibble coming up to... Aberdeen, he just couldn't get traction. And you've got to remember as well, I mean, this wasn't the great Man City sides of the time. They took, I mean, they had a great history of goalkeepers, including, you know, Swift and Corrigan and the like. But yeah, Andy Dibble just never quite got there. I'm just wondering, you know, Joe Pereira could be that similar, you know, well-hyped, well-thought-of, uh, and just couldn't quite do it. Yeah, I think he came up, it was the end of one of the seasons with Rangers. Which one was it that he came up? And I think he played the... I don't know if it was the, the nine in a row, was it, that he played? I'm not sure. But I remember him coming up, I think it was towards the end of the season that he, he just came in and played. So I think he must have played a few at the start of the next season as well. Yeah, he came to Rangers in 97, played just the seven times. He got three Wales caps mm. over a sort of three-year spell. Now, he was captain, last captain, 89. He came to Rangers uh, in 97. But interestingly, if you look at 97, in that year he played for Sheffield United Rangers, back to Sheffield United, Luton Town, and you know, and then just kept going, making it's one of these people. You know, you've got an emergency need for a goalkeeper. You'll go and get Andy Dibble. That's certainly what it looked like. I mean, he settled with Wrexham for a while towards the end of his career, but 
yeah, if you look at the the laundry list of clubs, yeah, um, you know, it, it's hard because it's it's one of these positions. If you start to get a reputation that you're not quite good enough, it, it's hard then to drop down. You know, I mean, he was talked about being better than Neville Southall, who was an outstanding goalkeeper. Yeah, absolutely, I, I suppose in. I'm not saying that he wasn't a good keeper, but maybe if you can't get John Burridge, you go get Andy Dibble. Maybe that's what the option is. Because <laughs> uh, jo- John's certainly one for the clubs, isn't he? Famously. And you see that with players. And that's why, you, you know, when players sign for clubs, Andy, and I, one of the things that I do as a commentator, I always go back, look at the history, you know, put in some stats and information. There's always an alarm bell for players who are constantly going out on loan or having one season at a club and then moving on because not every club is going to be wrong. It's not to say they're bad people. It can just be your level of skill and expectation has been heightened a little bit too much. I mean, you know, I would have killed to, you know, to play for Man City for nearly 10 years. That would have been great. I'm not, I'm not arguing that, but yeah. he just never was able to make that leap uh, that perhaps many expected. Mm. So just on the, the next page, we have an advert on page seven and it says, what does it take to be a great champion? Determination, skill, baked beans. Now, this is a new weekly publication and it's described as informative sheets on the world's sportsmen and women. Every week you receive a collection of sheets which highlights an individual sporting champion, giving details of their particular sport. They also reveal many interesting personal facts. For instance, did you know that Ian Rush dislikes pasta so much that when he was playing in Italy he had tins of baked beans shipped over from England? (laughs) <laughs> so why not order it from your news agent? It says it's just that this idea of sheets is just seems a, a bit of an interesting thing. There's a photograph which I guess it looks like a, a, a ring binder or something maybe. So I think that would be one of these things that you you build up over time. But I remember hearing that story about Ian Rush. I I don't know whether it's true or not, but there there is the story that John Motson, I think at one of the World Cups, it may have been the one in South Korea. Uh, had tomato soup sent out because he didn't like the food. Now, again, whether that's true or not, yeah. but you do hear these kind of stories that people don't settle for for various cuisines. Oh, I, listen, I, I believe that because I, I know what, especially British people are like going abroad, you know, taking their own tea bags and things like that as if con- other countries don't have these items. Does anybody, <laughs> does anybody have any recollection, any memories of this? I mean, I haven't, even in my, my collecting years, I haven't seen this at all and it's maybe something I can try and get on my radar but does anybody remember this? No, I don't. No. It, it doesn't ring a bell I mean again you've got to stress to people this is pre-internet so if you were highly into sport and collecting information this kind of thing would have been popular it's like you know collecting you know encyclopedias or you know yeah. different different you know publications This it was in at the time almost you know, now I think, you know, they try and sell you something that models you can build over sort of 52 weeks. But information at that point, as I say, you couldn't just go to a phone. You didn't have one in your pocket. Um, you know, you didn't have computers. So that kind of thing was, I could see the appeal of it for people who wanted to expand their information. Or you just go down to your local library because that's really what you used to have to do. I think you make a good point there about these things that are over a 52, you know, build over 52 weeks and stuff. And I remember... I can't remember what publications, but as a kid, been interested in some a couple of things like that. But the, the fact was, we just couldn't afford that, you know, to spend however much fifty two weeks 
you know, on top of you're getting your match, you're getting your shoot, your Roy the Rovers and things like that. It just wasn't affordable. It sort of puts me in mind. I don't. Uh, you may be aware of the Marshall Cavendish football collection, which was pamphlet, not pamphlets, but it was a weekly thing as well, which you collected and you put into to these sort of binders as well. So that, it reminds me a bit of that, although mm-hmm. that was all football. But as I say, I, I maybe put that on my radar and see if I can, if, if eBay, well, I'm sure it'll have something on there. Okay, moving along to pages eight and nine. So we're on the the shoot stats page. So this is the, the scores, scorers, teams, attendances, things like that as well. So I'm just going to pick a couple out and, you know, more than happy if anybody wants to, to look at anything else. But I'm going to start with Saturday the 12th of February and this is the Littlewoods Cup semi-final first leg and it's West Ham nil, Luton Town 3. It's attendance of 24,602 and goals from Hartford, Wiggily and Wilson for Luton Town. That was a bit of a scalp in the first leg there. I think we may touch on the second leg a little bit later in this magazine. Tuesday the 14th of February, ah, Valentine's Day. Scottish Premier Division, Hamilton 0, Aberdeen 2. Attendance just over 2,000 with goals from Robert Connor and Stephen Wright. Charlie Nicholas is the star man with a shoot rating of 9. That's a pretty good rating, that. Scottish First Division, a good win for the Bankies. Clybank 3, Queen of the South 0. Uh, Partick Thistle 4, Air United 1. Now, interestingly, Arsenal played France in a friendly. The Arsenal won 2-0. And the page shows a black and white photo of Brian Marwood heading towards goal. I think that's Lauren Blanc on the floor. And he's putting in a despairing challenge. So I'm not quite sure what the what the purpose behind that friendly was. Anybody have any ideas? No, but it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you would pay to watch that kind of game. You yeah. know, that, that's kind of friendly you might find interesting. It, it smarts of a warm-up game for France... You know, not having to travel yeah. very far, rather than anything else. But looking at the, these pages, I mean, th- this is Nirvana. This is why <laughs> one of the reasons I used to buy shoot because I loved all of this stuff. The chance to see, you know, the game, the scorers, the halftime scores, the times the goals went in, yeah. full team lines, you know, referee names. Th- th- this this was it, and I think this is what sparked uh, my love of statistics. Just watching all of this stuff you know, rolled through. It was just, it, it was a thing of beauty, especially in the weeks where you had a lot of fixtures, you know, rearranged games. I mean, sometimes they had to go to three or four pages with this. I, I just loved it. absolutely loved it. Top goal scorers or leading scorers, you know, the league tables were there. It was just fascinating. Absolutely. I, what, what I find fascinating, and, and to be honest, I, I do it every now and then, is there's certain results you, you can't do it with because it just gives you the teams and the results but when you get the, the goal scorers the times, the teams, yellow cards and stuff, you can sort of in your head replay the game and obviously you're not going to, unless you've seen the game or read about the game but I find it quite interesting doing that just trying to, or they take an early lead and then, or they just equalise just before half time so the next team, you know, and I like to do that and just use a bit of imagination just to fill the gaps with it it's amazing what you can do with relatively little information with this, just knowing how games generally go. And it's good if maybe you recognise some of the players and you know what... I mean, likes of the Charlie Nicholas, you, you know Charlie, if he gets a nine, then he's probably, you know, you can imagine that he's he's controlling the game and, you know, a thorn in the side and things like that. 
But yeah, definitely. As you said about some, sometimes they maybe went to four pages of that. What I found fascinating was sometimes they actually continued on the next week's one. So you had to wait the next week to get the rest of, the, say they couldn't put everything on here. So you, you would get Division 2 results from this week and next week's edition and it's just but that it's coming back to what you said earlier on about not having information you know it's you don't have the internet is sometimes you only knew about results when you got your magazine you know there was nothing there was nothing really on the tv certainly match of the day maybe have been on a bit too late sometimes for, for us so we wouldn't see it from there so you'd have to wait for the magazine to come out in order to actually know what a result happened maybe two weeks ago, which I, I it's just getting our head around that nowadays is, is incredible. I mean, it is mind-blowing. You know, the other mind-blowing thing about this, um, and if you look at the, the Scottish Cup, because it was Scottish Cup fourth round day, the other mind-blowing thing about this particular magazine and, and this week is Hearts, Hibs and Meadow Bank were all at home at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. You, you you just don't get that now. I mean, the the police simply wouldn't allow it. Hartsbeat Park Thistle. There was eighteen thousand at uh, Tyne Castle. There was just short of twelve thousand to watch Hibs beat Motherwell. And uh, Meadowbank uh, played Morton in front of well seven hundred and fifty. I think might be um, uh, massaging the figures slightly because <laughs> that's where I used to go. I used to go to Meadowbank. My yeah. dad wouldn't take me to Hearts because it was too dangerous in the early 80s with various amounts of crowd trouble and things like that. So I used to go and watch Meadow Bank, so that, that was the sort of level I looked at. But to have all three in the town on the same day was very unusual. Yeah, and indeed, you've got Celtic and Rangers both at home on the same day as well, yeah. is that? And it, it probably just makes life easier for, for the for the police and people who live in these towns. So I, I'm not going to argue too much about it, if I'm being perfectly honest. But yeah, it's certainly a very interesting point in that. So the, just on the Scottish Cup, fourth round there on Saturday the 18th, so Aberdeen and Dun United draw 1-1, so I, I guess that would go to a replay. And Celtic, unfortunately, dumped Clyde Bank out 4-1 at Celtic Park. Hearts beat Partick Thistle 2-0, goals from Bannon and Colhoun, in front of over 18,000 at Tynecastle. That's a pretty healthy crowd there. Hibs beat Motherwell 2-1, Collins and May for Hibs and Bryce for Motherwell. Would that be Tommy Bryce? No, I think Tommy Bryce was playing for Clay Bank, I think, at that time. I wanted to see that, that Queen of the South game was covered. Uh, we beat Queen of the South 3-0. That was covered on like Report in Scotland mm-hmm. because we were playing Celtic on the Saturday. So the, the goals for that game was on the news, previewing our Scottish Cup game. Right. And I'm pretty sure Tommy Bryce scored. Okay, it'll be interesting who the other... Because I, I can't think of another Bryce... The other game, Rangers thumped Stranraer 8-0 after being 6-0 up at half-time. And that's the taking the, of the proverbial the foot off the, off the gas, isn't it? Now, interestingly, one thing I... And listen, I may be just too busy trying to look for it that I can't see it, but there's a black-and-white photograph of Tommy Coyne just above there, and it says, Dundee hotshot Tommy Coyne, but I can't find a single game in the two pages that Dundee play in. So I'm just wondering why they've included that. Uh, is he one of the top scorers, maybe? Is yeah, that... he was on nine league goals at the time. But, I mean, McAvenny 12, McGee, 12, Nicholas, yeah. 11. Uh, it, it seems, you know, one of the things that I used to love about Shoot was they had some great pictures, you know, some great action shots. Mm-hmm. And just occasionally you get something, as you say, they're slightly weird, you know, featuring Tommy Coyne. It's almost like, well, we've actually featured the others, so... 
let's show somebody a picture of Tommy Coyne, but there is no record of Dundee playing yeah. anywhere. So, yeah. yeah, that is slightly weird. Yeah, I mean, it's fair enough about him being fourth or something in the in the striking department there. But I just, I just found it, I, to be honest, I did spend a good few minutes looking over it and looking over it again, saying maybe I'm just being stupid, but... There we go. I'm happy enough. The other game, just looking at there, was the Little Woods, the other Little Woods Cup semi-final, first leg of Nottingham Forest one, Bristol City one, and that was thirty thousand attended. That and it was a late John Pender own goal for Forest and Paul Marden for City. So Bristol City one 0 up there, and I think they were a, a league below Forest, but we, we'll maybe touch on that as well. But that was a late equaliser that got Forest a second chance. Before we move on, apparently that um, Arsenal-France friendly was because um, France were playing Scotland, I think, the next month, mm-hmm. and they wanted to warm up by playing against a British team. Right, OK. Well, how times have changed. I mean, how many yeah. teams would need to play Arsenal to warm up against Scotland? <laughs> um, you know, although, to be fair, Arsenal aren't the greatest at the, at the moment either, but I, Scotland were a good team at the time. I mean, that was probably quite a wise move by the French. Put it this way, I... I would think if Scotland, if France were to play Scotland now and they wanted to play the current Arsenal because it was an indication of what they would be up against against Scotland, I'd be quite happy with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, fair enough, because even back then, it's guess the Arsenal team would have been mostly British, so it would mostly have been British. a British style that they played as well. That was the kind of thing that went on, went on then, kind of thing that you would look at playing a, you know, a, an English club playing a Russian team and Europe would give you an indication of how the national team would play or playing a French team, a Portuguese team in Europe would, would be a pointer to how an international match might go kind of thing. And it, it was the era kind of thing. I remember England warmed up for the 82 World Cup by playing Athletic Bilbao. So it is the kind of thing. I don't know when that would have stopped. Again, probably as the, as the Premiership was coming in, that kind of thing maybe stopped. That kind of countries playing clubs and friendlies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure we would see that again, other than potentially for a maybe a, a stadium opening or something like it's that. Or some, yeah, a big yeah. charity thing. Of course, you've got the international calendar now, which basically kills the yeah, opportunities. Yeah. You know, so obviously, I mean, I don't know whether you, you know Arsenal just happened to have a free day. You know, obviously there there were semi finals and things going on with the Littlewoods uh, Cup, but I don't think there was much else going on. I mean, there was certainly you know. There was nothing listed on that particular Saturday for the Littlewoods Cup, so they obviously just took advantage, um, you know, the, the the opportunity the following week to to play the friendly. So it, it, it's just an interesting one, isn't it? You know, and uh, Arsenal beat them as well. So hopefully, you know, that would have been enough. Arsenal, Arsenal again. I mean, the, the pictures in black and white, but I'm sure that's the the yellow kit mm-hmm. uh, they were wearing, which was another stunning kit at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So just looking again at the the, the Arsenal France game there, and underneath, it's interesting again that you've got Friday night games in Division Three and Division Four down in England. Now, again, I th- I thought that was, I didn't think that was something that went back that far playing games on Friday nights in in the senior leagues. So that's that's quite interesting as well, I think. Okay, so we'll, we'll move on to page 11. These are adverts. So that's the first advert we're going to look at here. There's two adverts on this page, and the first one we're going to look at is for a shoot special offer for Radian B Rub. Now, there's a form to fill in and send away to shoot where 500 lucky readers will win a tube of Radian B. 
worth <laughs> 75 pence each you're just you're like you can feel the excitement can't you yeah i want to i want to win a, a, a tub of that now for me that is just the smell of changing rooms for me i don't know if it's still is used by young kids and stuff these days or you know youngsters but it certainly was a another present in the changing rooms i've been involved in just that smell which makes you just thinking about it just now just transports me right back there i i agree i mean you could be I, you wanted to be the kid that had some of that stuff because you were then even more popular <laughs> uh, you know yeah. even for the kids who couldn't play very well but if they had some rub and they wanted to share it you think yeah okay then but yeah that 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 smell i mean i don't think it's unique to scotland but i mean yeah you know i, I used to play uh for the boys brigade down at leffham park in edinburgh and it had two lots of changing changing rooms one was very old and pokey and the other were, were much more modern and if you were in the old and pokey one uh you couldn't avoid the smell yeah. even if nobody had it with them you couldn't <laughs> avoid the smell because it was permeated throughout the wood and the benches that you used to to sit on so yeah it, it, it's i smiled when i saw that advert i must yeah, admit yeah uh, the next advert on there just underneath so this is armed and dangerous and it features a photo of a rock star. Now, I've put in brackets here, not a real one, because he's not a real rock star, it's pretty obvious. But he's got the typical long hair, leather trousers, sleeveless top, a tattoo, jewellery, and he's playing the guitar with smoke and light behind him, so the whole picture's there. It says, for a cool £89, you get a practice amplifier, a carrying bag, a brilliantly simple book and tape set, a lead a strap and pickup, oh, and a guitar in one of four colours. I just like that brilliantly simple book. You know that 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 would that would get me straight into it as well. It's it's one of these adverts that's just it's just something special. I think. I'm wondering who was aimed at because if you were you know in your early teens buying shoot, you know I'm not sure that was quite your thing. Mm. But perhaps if you were 15, 16, it might be. I have to say, you, you certainly wouldn't be provoking uh, amp envy um, <laughs> with anyone, given the size of the amp in the picture. Maybe it's just very far away. Maybe it's just very far <laughs> away. It's one of those ones. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's tiny. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question as well about who it'd be aimed at. And this is one that sort of makes me think of one of the things when, when I hear people talking about shoot magazines and match magazines and they call them comics or, or children's comics and it's like they're not later on they did start becoming actually a bit more focused towards younger kids and the, you know you could see by the articles and the the features in it it was focusing on that but certainly from 68 when shoot started all the way through to this time and a bit later for me the articles aren't for young kids it's not the sort of thing that young kids would read. Young kids would read that knobby cartoon that's on the other page. They would they would fill in the, the vote now for your star month and win a t-shirt. They would do that sort of thing, but they wouldn't read the articles. I think it was a more mature audience than, than a lot of people give it credit for at the time. Yeah, it was your opportunity to actually read about football and learn about football. I mean, mm. the, the, the pictures were always superb. You actually got insight because you were getting information that you weren't typically getting in a newspaper. Now, for somebody like me in my household, my dad, um, he, he took the Daily Telegraph as his daily paper. So I didn't see a great deal of Scottish football kicking around in the Daily Telegraph. Literally, to get your fill out with a little bit of television was to buy, shoot or match. And I mean, 
when shoot came out, that was it. That's what I wanted. Yeah. You know, that that was the you know, more so than the comics, more so than Roy the Rovers. I think you graduate across uh, from from Roy the Rovers onto this because this was the real thing. This is the stuff you could see a little bit on the television. You know, you. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I used to sneak down. You know, usually on a Wednesday night at half ten, that's when I felt ill. Had to go and see my folks because that's when sports night was on, and especially if there'd been a midweek cup tie that you wanted to see. Now it never worked, yeah. but you got a sort of ten second, twenty second glimpse of whatever game it was before being dispatched back upstairs. This was a real lifeline to football. And I'm not sure necessarily kids, you know, similar age today would get that simply because all the electronic stuff. But this this was your gateway into learning about the game. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, I'd say maybe it's definitely the amount of information that's available now. It's just too much for them to, to take any of it in. So the fact that you've got just a couple of publications with, you know, select information. It's maybe it was maybe a good thing for us because we could we could soak that right in rather than, you know, being look here, look here, look here, look at this, look at this, look at this, and your attention is constantly. I mean, I find it myself with trying to pick movies or music to watch or listen, and it's like there's just so much choice that I spend most of the time thinking of which one I'm going to watch, and then I don't watch anything. You know, and it's like, I think, you know, that's the problem with having too much information, too much choice, is it, it gives you too much choice. Yeah, it's, it's changed. It's changed football commentary as well. I mean, greatly. I mean, when I started, you didn't have a great deal of information. The first European season that I covered as a commentator, I went to Waterstones in Edinburgh and bought the European review book mm. for the year because that's where you got squad details what clubs had done in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Now you're two clicks away from it revealing everything. And there's almost too much, as you say, information about that people get slightly blasé about it. Um, And I I think it's great to look back at these. You know, I I agree. I I never considered Shoot to be a comic. Yeah. It was was a magazine. It was all about football, and it's what I wanted to read. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm wondering. Would you have had the Rothmans books? That I'm guessing those would have been the sort of books that you would have absolutely loved. It, I, I love the Scottish versions, which were the Clydesdale Bank yeah. books. Um, now I collected the Clydesdale Bank books from when I started with the BBC back in, which was '91. Um, and when he retired, Alistair Alexander gave me. Uh, the copies that I didn't have. So I've got a complete collection sitting up on my shelves uh, behind me. And I still use them Mm -hmm. to this day because it's still, you know, you you get great information from them. And some of the stuff that's in there um, isn't on the internet. And, you know, especially around Scottish Cup time, if it's clubs who haven't played each other a great deal, sometimes it can be the 90s and when, you know, the Clydesdale Bank uh, did these things. So... Yeah, Rothmans was great from from the English perspective, but the the Clydesdale Bank or the B and Q ones, as it as it became as well, they, they were just sensational. I'm guess I'm guessing certainly from my point of view, I think sometimes when you're physically looking through something, it maybe goes in there a little bit more. Whereas if you if you go into Google and search it, you're like, okay, there's the answer, and it's maybe forgotten, not not instantly, but I think by the act of researching it, open up a page, reading through. I think it maybe sticks in there a little bit more. Would that, would that be fair enough to say? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there just is something about a, a physical book that I, I think does help. And then, you know, you get a better sense of the illustration 
uh, and you can move it you can move about the book an awful lot quicker you know rather than constantly coming back and and clicking and things so th there is a certain beauty and elegance in looking that way the, the other reason it's changed of course is people can go in and find out their own information so the job of the commentator you know you used to and uh, uh, such pretentious, enlighten people about certain players because we didn't have information about them. Yeah. Now, two clicks, you can check any player you like and you, you'll have some semblance of an idea of who they are. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll jump back into this. So we're on pages 12 and 13. So this is Rocking Robins and it's Battling City Ready to Shock Forest. So this is about the, the semi-final, the Littlewoods Cup between Bristol City and Nottingham Forest and Shooter previewing that. So it says, Bristol City boss Joe Jordan told Shoot Readers in January that his third division side could reach the Littlewoods Cup final. Not many people believed him then, but the dream is now very close to reality after their superb 1-1 draw away to Nottingham Forest in the first leg of the semi-finals. So that's what we just touched on that in the, the results page. Now two of the three photos from the previous game show player manager Joe Jordan in typical battling pose. The main picture there has him up in an aerial battle, and there's actually a hand up in there. But mm -hmm. this this time it doesn't belong to Joe Jordan, so I think that's maybe a first that he's been involved in that, and it's not his hand. His are down by well near his waist, shall we say? So a spoiler on on the game. Uh, Nottingham Forest eventually edged out Bristol City one 0 after an extra time in the second leg to take them to the final. And Forrest would then go on to beat Luton Town 3-1 in the final. So that that was a... Didn't quite get there for Joe Jordan and his side. The bottom one has Joe there as well. And it's just... I love... I'm a big fan of Joe Jordan. I think he's been a fantastic player for Scotland. Three World Cups, isn't it? Three, Three World in, Cup. yeah. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I mean... I don't think that'll ever be. I mean, if we ever get to three, three more again, it'd be a feat. But I don't think I'll ever see them get to three. So I would settle for going back. You know, Joe Jordan's a great pub argument, isn't it? I mean, you know, we could sit down tonight, Andy and Tom, get a pint, and say, how much is Joe Jordan worth today? Mm. If he was playing today in his pomp, how much would he be worth? Because you know, yes, he, he went to Milan, etc. I mean, he got big moves, but boy, what a player! I mean, I I saw him play. And a testimonial at Tynecastle, and he was still one of the most outstanding players on the park. Yeah, you know, and he was the heart's boss at the time. Um, just a tremendous, tremendous player. And you look at that. I mean, it's a third division side playing a division one side, a top side. Yet he's got that inspiring. You know, he'd been there, seen it, and done it. And you, you just get the feeling he lifted that Bristol City team up. You know, to take them within, let's be honest, within an inch of Wembley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, brilliant, absolutely fantastic. So just over the page, we're on page fifteen. So I just want to look at the advert here, and it says so. The it's an advert and it says rugby shirts for soccer fans. Okay, I'll I'll we'll talk about the page first, and then we'll come back to that that heading, which I find a bit strange. Now this is a full page color advert. At the top of the advert, we have a number of standard club style quarter rugby tops I think is a good description of them and then in a combination of different colours there's a photo of two young lads sporting the shirts with their hands raised in celebration doesn't look the most natural of celebrations going on there to the side of the page are international replica rugby shirts for England, France, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Australia and New Zealand all of them look the same style just different colours now I know you're a big rugby fan Paul 
was that the case that they were all the same make and style and just different colours, or is this what they're selling is just looking like that? Yeah, I mean, the rugby jerseys were of that type, just heavy cotton, everybody had a white collar, you know, badge on the chest. That That's how rugby jerseys were. But these rugby jerseys for soccer fans, I mean, I'm not sure any soccer fan self-respecting would have worn any of these jerseys. They look utterly horrific. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I'm trying to think what teams you might even think to wear, you know, is, is there somebody in red and black? I mean, the green and white one, I mean, a Celtic fan or a Hibs fan, I mean, you wouldn't be seen dead <laughs> in anything like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. I actually got, it, it was the sports bags for soccer fans mm-hmm. underneath, the head bags. Yeah. I'd forgotten all about that. They're, they're in different colours. I won't try and describe the colours because I'm slightly colourblind, so I'm always a bit wary of that. But the, the black and red head bag, I had one of those. Yeah. And just seeing this picture again thing, I thought I was brilliant. You know, I was able to take this, you know, as football kit. And it's just so funny seeing it again. Yeah. Uh, they weren't the cheapest thing in the world either, having a look at it. But yeah, just these answers. I always wondered and how much money did somebody make out of this? How many replica rugby shirts did this advert, you know, get in, you know, to make a profit? That, that it just always intrigued. I mean, you've got to say they were there, so you presume it worked. But yeah, it always surprised me slightly. I was just looking for the for the company, Home Shop Mail Order Specialist, and it's it's not one that I've seen a lot of through the magazine. So, you know, sometimes I see something like this, and then an advert for football boots, and they they look different, but it's actually the same company. So I could understand things like that. But the Home Shop, I don't really recognise them. And as you're talking about the the head bags, the black and red one there, I had that exact one, but it was a dark blue and red. And I remember I got absolutely years worth of usage out of it. I mean, it was falling falling apart at the end. And I think there's a bit at the end, which is the red, that zipped off, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, it came off at the end. It was amazing. Yeah, that's where you kept your your um, your stunting, yeah, things like that. So brilliant. But yeah, but just yeah, rugby shirts for soccer fans. Say that you you pointed out the the green and white one with a sort of it's a yellowy, goldy, orangey color collar on it as well. I guess you know that maybe yeah. maybe Celtic. But there's the one beside it, the black, white, and green. Just the combinations of colors. That, I don't get it, and I think they've they've just basically said let's just do a random color generator and pick these these things. Um, well, I imagine though that there wasn't a rugby version of shoot to try and punt these things to actual rugby fans. Yeah, so they've they've kind of skewered it a wee bit. I'm I'm wondering why would there have been a rugby World Cup around about this sort of time? Eighty seven was the first rugby World Cup. Yeah, I mean, rugby was starting to get popular. Obviously, mm. you know, the, the the World Cup certainly brought it home. I mean, I mean, the Five Nations, as it was to me, was just always such a big, big weekend of sport. And you know, I've always puzzled that, that that there's quite a large number of football fans that don't like rugby. And I, I don't know whether it is the old the old school thing. I mean, I went to school in Edinburgh, and you were just assumed at the school I went to that. You didn't play football at that school. It was as simple as that. It wasn't a posh school. It was just a normal high school, Trinity. But you play, you played rugby. You accepted that you played rugby. You learnt rugby. And football was something either for a club team or, or for the BBs. Um, so I, I grew up with an immense love of rugby. And I remember the first time I was at, I did a game at Easter Road. And Gordon Smith and Murdo McLeod were my co-commentators. I think it was Hibs Celtic. 
and I made some reference to the day before the Calcutta Cup game, and they both just looked at me <laughs> blankly. You know, that it just wasn't their sport at all. And I, I don't know, it's just because I like so many sports, I just presume everybody does, and I, I get the fact that, that that isn't true. Yeah, I mean, from my own experience growing up in Glasgow, I only ever... There was only one other school I knew that did rugby, or one school I knew which did, did rugby, and it was a school that was on the Great Western Road going into town. Other than that, everything was football. So I wasn't, I wasn't exposed to rugby. I wasn't exposed to cricket. I wasn't exposed to any other sport. So my school did rugby. I was at Clayborn High, and we did, we did rugby. I wasn't looking forward to it because my cousin, who was like six years older than me, used to come up to my mum's to basically to hide uh, when he had when he had rugby because <laughs> he was terrified of it. Uh, so I wasn't looking forward to it, but I found I actually quite enjoyed playing rugby at school. Yeah. I, I think it was because I was kind of into football, I kind of picked up the rules a wee bit better than some of the other guys yeah. in the class, but I quite enjoyed playing rugby. What, what I found about rugby compared to football, if you had one really good footballer in your 11, he could make all the difference in the world to the game. Yeah, it's more If you team. had one really good rugby player, that, that didn't work in the same way. Right. And what, what I loved about rugby was you had to play as a team. You couldn't just give it to the best player in the team all the time yeah. and let him do the work, as, as, as I think we've all done in football. Um, you just couldn't do that. And that, that's where my love of rugby came, because you, you had to work as a team, because if you didn't, you had absolutely no chance. Whereas football, you know, one star player and one half decent player sometimes is enough to see you through. Mm, absolutely. We're going to take a little break from the magazine here, so you're going to be more than aware of the focus on features which are in shoot, so they, they ask questions to a famous footballer. So we're going to do a focus on Paul Mitchell here, so we're going to fire okay. some questions at you. Uh, full name? Well, my middle name starts with a W, mm -hmm. and I can tell you guys that nobody has ever guessed it right. Okay, uh, so is, is that a challenge? Uh, go for it if you want, and I'd be highly impressed if you got it. Well, I, well I'm going to guess, is it your mum's maiden name? Well, see, th this is clever. It, it was my grandmother's uh, surname that I got, so okay. it's a, it's a surname. This is an ongoing thing in the, the, the podcast, because um, quite often when we look at players, their middle, like uh, Bob Wilson, is Bob Primrose Wilson, and Primrose <laughs> was his... his um, well, we his... found out with a couple of guests as well, though, that yeah. they've had a, a um, mother's maiden name. Yeah. Is, is there middle names? Well, I'm going to guess Walker. Nope. Wilson. Nope. I'll, I'll put you in your misery. It's Whiteman, spelled W-I-G-H-T-M-A-N. Hmm. It's an it's an unusual surname, and that, that was given to me as my middle name. And I'm as proud as can be of that middle name because nobody ever guesses it right. So, <laughs> and you know, a nice little W in the signature doesn't doesn't go amiss. Yeah. So, so when when we first started talking about that, it, it mentioned that it was a Scottish tradition. I don't know if you're, yeah. you're aware that it's a Scottish tradition, but it was certainly not one that we'd aware of at the time, although since then we're more than aware of it now. Okay, birthplace. Uh, Edinburgh. What was your first car? My first car was a white, I'll be, I have to be careful here, because it's a, I think it was a white Datsun Cherry, a CSN 696V. It was white with blue interior, and it had chrome strips down the side. Made an impression then by the sounds of it. Oh, loved it. Well, I, I went straight to work uh, leaving school after fifth year. I went straight to work in a bank. 
And as soon as I passed my test, because I worked in a bank, I had access to finance. I was able to buy a car quite quickly. Mm. And I you know, got a bank loan um, when I think I was 18 to buy a car. It was about a grand, I think, I took the bank loan for. So it, it was a reasonable car. It wasn't you know, a beat up. You know, things. So it was it was a decent car for it for its time. Mm, nice one. Who's your favourite player of all time? My favourite player. You know, I mean, I grew up as a Hearts supporter and going to watch Hearts, and and you you'll see him later in the year. Henry Smith was my favourite player simply because of the longevity mm-hmm. uh, at Hearts, and I, I always had a wee hang. I mean, I'm only five foot six. I was never ever going to play in goals anywhere, but I always admired goalkeepers just for their what they had to go through when they made a mistake, they had to own that mistake and then come back mentally. I think it, it was that sort of mental toughness that appealed to me. Good. I like that. I always like people who like goalkeepers, so that's good. <laughs> the, the, the next one is a, is a no-brainer. Favourite team? You know, I was a Hearts fan growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I now class myself as a neutral Hearts fan, just in case anybody gets upset. <laughs> okay. What's the most... Then this, this could be quite an interesting one, given how many you've been to what's the most memorable match that you've either seen commentated on been involved in I mean it's really hard to distill them all all down I've been lucky to travel to some to some great places I mean I was in the you know the Parc France um, to watch you know France play Italy after they played in the World Cup final I was there when James McFadden scored in the top corner which is one of the memorable nights but the it wasn't a great game because Scotland lost, but the the first time that I worked at the San Siro, there was just something magical about Milan, you know, AC and Inter, and that, you know, that stadium, which, you know, is now in trouble and is probably going to get replaced. It was iconic to me having grown up watching Football Italia. There was just something about Milan. There was something about the San Siro. And to get to do, you know, Italy against Scotland in the San Siro, it's seared on my memory. It was just such a wonderful, wonderful night. Brilliant. What's been your biggest thrill? My biggest thrill? There's been several. One of them was, one was bizarre. I got a phone call one day from the guy who gave out the games, the current, the head of sport at the time. And I was asked to go and do, I think it was Scotland against the Faroe Islands, um, which puzzled me greatly because David Begg was our international commentator at the time. And I couldn't figure out why I'd been given the game. Uh, I remember going through to Glasgow. I went into the BBC offices in the old Queen Margaret Drive. And I actually met David, uh, who was in. He was doing research because he was doing Scotland's game a few days later. So the, so I went to Hampden Park. Uh, I'd only been there once as a supporter. And, and to walk into the media centre and go upstairs and just emerge. This, this was early. This was about one o'clock. And to walk out and thinking, geez, I'm about to do... Our, my national team on the national radio station. It felt surreal. It was such a thrill. Yeah. And I have to say, every time I covered Scotland, it was a thrill to be sitting there as you know, as one of the main broadcasters covering your country. That was mm. tremendous. Brilliant. In, in the flip side, what's been your biggest disappointment? <sighs> my biggest disappointment, I mean, uh, well, I'll be honest, losing the gig as the main commentator in, in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I was in a good place. I thought I was in a good position. I'd done well for six years and I never saw it coming. You know, these things happen. I mean, I'm a much more experienced broadcaster now. Uh, change happens. I get that. But I never saw it coming. And it, it was such a disappointment at the time. It's it's a disappointment now. But, you know, that's life and you move on. Indeed. 
What's the best country that you visited? Uh, best country? I mean, I, I I go to the states a lot because I love watching baseball and American football. In terms of traveling abroad um, to watch football, I was lucky enough to go to Canada for the 2007 Under 20 World Cup and was just blown away uh, by Canada. I just loved it. But the, the place that if you said you could go and watch football and work in uh, Germany, I absolutely adore working in Germany. I find the Germans wonderful people. They're very efficient. They're very organized. They know what they want to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Germany. Mm. I think we've had that answered quite a few times, Tom, haven't we, with other guests? So that does seem to be a popular one. What's your favourite food? Favourite food? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my go-to food for years was sausages. I, I just, you know, that, that was the thing I used to eat. So I'm very much the, the carnivore. I've now come to, you know, to explore things like chorizo and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. so stuff of that ilk is, is, is where I, I tend to land. Okay. Miscellaneous likes, so just give us two things that you, you like doing. So I like doing, I love researching football matches and rugby matches. I, I adore I adore broadcasting, but I like the research part of it. That's that's what does it for me mm-hmm. in in those strange ways. I really enjoy getting in there. And the other love I have is of American sport and you know, I love my baseball. I'd love to try broadcasting a, a baseball game. I'm very lucky. I know a couple of the guys who work for the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, and I've, I've watched them work, which, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my kind of passions, if you like. Okay. Is there anything, you think anything on the cards for doing that? No, baseball's highly, highly skilled. I mean, th- these guys, I mean, they cover 160-plus games in a season. It's a storytelling as much as, as commentating. It's a bit like cricket, international cricket here. Uh, could I do it? With a, with a fair bit of practice, I'd, I'd fancy my chances of doing it a little bit, but to do it as these guys do it day in, day out, no. I, I mean, I, I'd love to give an NFL game a crack. I reckon I could do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a couple of things that you dislike. I dislike uh, being late, um, which, which might sound a bit fussy, but I really dislike being late. And I dislike people who confuse their opinions with facts. That, that drives me nuts. We're, we're currently, you know, if you go into Twitter, and I, I love Twitter, I love Twitter because it's funny, but I don't like people telling me uh, or interpreting what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, well, you say that, but what you really mean is this. Or people who argue with you, giving you their opinion, but they present their opinion as fact. I'm quite open to anybody disagreeing with anything that I say because that's how life works. You know, we, we can all get together, have a little pub argument, and that's great. I don't think any worse for people for doing it, but I don't like being um, dealing with people who believe their opinion is to be fact. No, I hear you. absolutely agree with that. What's your favourite TV show of all time? In terms of TV shows, I mean, it can ebb and flow, but one of my, one of my all-time favourites, and I didn't understand it as a kid, but I understood it as an adult, because I always used to see it on telly around about nine o'clock, half nine at night when I was a kid. Couldn't figure it out. Is MASH. Mm-hmm. What a program MASH yeah. was. That comedic genius to go to the serious nature and the way it was written and the words of that. I think, you know, having watched it first time around, I can never understand it. I, I watched it again and I, I can remember coming across it. I When I had my first flat, I got Virgin TV 
um, you know, got it in and flicked through the channels and there was Masher. I'm thinking, that's that strange programme that used to be on on a Friday night. And I just watched it for a few minutes. It was utterly hooked. I've, se I've seen every episode of Mash. Mm, that's a great shout. It's something I've not thought about for a while, probably since I watched West Wing with Alan Alda in it. And that's probably the last time I thought about it. But Huge Alan Alda fan as well, as a result of Mash. Murder at 1600 is, is a great sort of kitsch movie if you like in which, mm. which I, I won't spoil it in case you've not seen it but Alan Alda plays a tremendous part in that yeah I'll, I'll give that a watch uh, what's your favorite favorite singers so just give us two singers that you like I'm a country guy uh, Garth Brooks is probably my my favorite uh, and I'm a real fan of a guy who suddenly you know, sadly fell on hard times but is, is trying to make a comeback with his health a guy called Randy Travis mm -hmm. so they're they're two of my favorite singers that just I love their songs I love their voices and one of the things I'd love to be able to do is actually sing and I can't <laughs> okay Fav favorite actors so give us two actors that you, you like uh, Alan Alda, I, I would always say, you know, it, I've, I've always liked stuff that he's in. You, you see certain actors and you look, if he's in it, I'm going to watch it. That would certainly be one. And just because of his, in the sort of popular films he's done, I, I do like Harrison Ford. I think he's tremendous. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Who's your best friend? I, I'd be hesitant to name one. I, what I would say is that I've got a very small group of friends that I've had for quite a while and I, and I cherish and I value, you know, their, their friendship. I mean, I've got a guy who used to be my boss when I started at Standard Life is now a really, really good friend of mine. I've got a guy uh, that I met on the first day of first year at Trinity, um, you know, in, in my, my secondary school. So, you know, they're some of my closest friends. I've got a friend from my old church down in Portobello and I've become very good friends with a guy I met at, when I moved churches a few years ago. Um, so I've got a nice, small, tight group of friends. And, and uh, you know what? I like that. You know, it, it's the old joke in the Mitchell household because uh, my wife is very outgoing, very gregarious, got lots of friends. I'm quite shy. Yeah. I'm quite retiring, believe it or not. <laughs> and I don't, I, don't, I don't make friends too easily because I'm not the most sociable person. So, you know, it's that old, you know, Dad, you want to phone a friend, but you have to have one. It's that kind of <laughs> stick that I get around here. Uh, that's a bit. That's a bit too much. I think that's a... <laughs> okay. Uh, second last question here: Who's the biggest influence on your life? Who's been the biggest influence? I, I would say my dad and my granda. Um, they both brought different things to me. You know, you know, my dad. I, I just admired greatly, and I think you know, for those who have got a close relationship with their dad, um, I think they would understand that, and I miss him greatly. And my granda just had a little bit more sageness shall we shall we say and perhaps just that he, he, because he wasn't responsible for me could encourage the slightly naughtier side of things if you like mm. um so so that would that would be the two people did you come from a family of heart supporters were they hearts fans as well my, my dad was a hearts fan my granda um who came to to scotland from wales at an early age he he was of the generation Andy, that you watched hibs one week you watched hearts the next week right. you never really classed yourself as a fan of either that's what you did you went to the football my dad was distressed when he had to take us to football because he'd he'd lived through the hearts Kilmarnock 65 where hearts lost the league on goal average um and sort of swore off football at that point 
only to be enticed back in the, the middle 70s uh, by, by his best friend. And I think that was the season Hearts got relegated for the first time. So to try and get my dad to take me to football was quite hard. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I can I can imagine why you would you would lose sort of confidence or love for football after that that title <laughs> the, on goal then goal average, wasn't it? Oh, unbelievable. They would have won on any other metric but goal average they mm. lost. So last question here. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Wow. I don't know how quickly you can come up with an I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been lucky enough to meet some some wonderful people. Um, you know, I mean, I would count one of the best people I ever met was Bob Crampsey. Right. Um, you know, the, the former BBC guy, broadcaster, you know, Brain of Britain and, and, and all that kind of thing. But, but one... One specific individual is, I mean, what a question. I mean, one guy, I mean, I, w- I would just pick pick at random, for example, would be Joe Buck, who is the chief announcer for Fox, who does the NFL, um, does golf and does baseball. I'd like to meet him from on a professional level to see how he does it all. You know, that, that, that would give me a great thrill just to get an insight into how he prepares how he works. I've read his book. His book's very good. Um, you know, on on that side, I think that that would be that would be quite fascinating. Excellent. Okay, so that's the end of the questions. Tom, do you have anything? Yeah, well, what I was going to ask you, Paul, I and mean, you've touched on it. I was just going to ask you a wee bit about your about your research, but sort of how you go about doing your research and kind of how much research you need to do. I imagine with your experience now, you've got a kind of idea of what's needed and what's not needed. So yeah, I just I mean, to know how you approached it, what you had in front of you during the game. So w- when I do a game, I've got uh, two sheets of A4 paper in front of me. I've got a match sheet and a team sheet. Uh, the team sheet is made up of labels uh, for all the players that are playing. So normally you don't know who's going to be playing in a game. For some games, you, you get a tip off for the team so you can prepare. But I tend not to put the, the labels on the sheet till I know these players are playing. Uh, the labels themselves have a player's name, age, height, uh, previous clubs, number of appearances that season in total, when they last scored. And I use the additional space within each label to just add in another two or three notes uh, about that particular player. So I've got that on one side. And on the other side, I've got my match sheet, which covers things like you know the head-to-head of, of the, the two teams, recent history between the two teams, uh, recent goal scorers in those teams, then how the team's doing that season, how they did last season, uh, how they've done over the last few years, and then try and find some, you know, interesting facts and information. Radio and TV, I prepare slightly differently because television, you need more personalised information about players because you've got to match that to the pictures that come up. Whereas on radio, uh, because you often have two summarisers, you've actually got less time to colour um, you can be a little bit more generic about things. So that that's the two sheets of paper. I've then got you know a whole pile of notes in my bag that, that back that up. I keep all my own records for the Scottish Premier Premier League teams. Um, I keep them in a spreadsheet, similar to shoot. That's the kind of information I would use. So for every um, team, I keep a note of every game they play. Uh, you know the score, scorer, goalkeeper, um, all of that, and that rumbles up together to allow me to count up appearances and allows me to print off a sheet that lets me see how that player's done that season 
you know, as I can tell, you know, no goals in these last 10, how many games he's missed, how many games he's been on the bench. That just allows me to to create some statistics. Um, so I have all that, and that, that that's the building blocks of, of where I go. In terms of how long, um, when I used to do the cup finals, I would start on a Monday morning, and I would just work work my way through till the end of the week, just trying to find all sorts of, you know, get all the code information, then try and find things that people might find interesting that might not already be out in the public domain. Uh, the, the best example I ever give of that is Rangers played Dundee United in a League Cup semi-final that Rangers won 7-1. I don't know if you remember that. Um, Ronald Rathoris played in goals uh, for Rangers. Nick Cogan played in goal for Dundee United. These same two goalkeepers had played each other earlier that season in the English League Cup, um, and the scoreline was also (laughs) 7-1. You know, and it's that kind of thing. I had no idea that, you know, that would come in so useful as it did on that night. But that's the kind of stuff I like to have at my fingertips. Often you don't get to use it. There's 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 an old saying, if it don't shoehorn something in just because you think it's interesting. Yeah. It's got to all come in context. But I like finding stuff like that. Okay. Just um, talking about the commentating, I know we've chatted about this on more than one occasion, is about the the art of the silence. Because quite often nowadays you've got commentators and you've got pundits and they just talk all the way through a game. And it's like we, we've talked about how important it is just to have that silence every now and then. In terms of you actually developing your commentating style, what was the, the most difficult part of it? Or did it come easy to you? Did you did you practice certain things? I mean, do, doing the podcast, when I'm editing it, I notice things that I repeat, M's and R's and things like that. And it's like you, you start to think about that when you're, when you're doing the next one. How was it getting to the stage you're at now? I mean, it was difficult. It depends how, how good you want to be. I mean, there, there, there are guys who'll do a game and never think about it again. I mean, in, certainly in the early days, I would record what, what I did, especially on television, and watch it back, not because of any form of self-satisfaction, but to, to pick up the verbal ticks or mm. the things that you said too much or the words that you used too often. So it's important you've got to be self you've got to be self-critical because yeah. that's the only way that you improve if somebody can coach you and help you but you've also got to be willing uh to assess your own performance i was very lucky alison alexander was very good with me and you know giving me hints and tips and you know if i'd done a big game he'd, he'd be in touch to say really good but think about you know x y or z interesting what you say about silence the, the discipline of being able to let people watch the pictures is so important, but it's not it's not encouraged at the moment. And I don't know why that is. I don't know whether certain TV companies just think silence indicates that the person has nothing to say, that you don't have a fact or information at your fingertips. But, you know, I, I used to work with a lot of guys and, and one, you know, we used to employ roughly the same tactic. If, if a period of silence, if I stop and don't naturally bring you in, if the, if the ball's in the middle of the field, whatever, let it go. If you want to come in, tap me on the arm. I'll give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down because I know where I want to take it next. And Ian McCall and I worked really well like that because Ian understood, as did Craig Patterson, Billy Dodds, Pat Nevin, understood that just at times, give it a break, let it breathe, and then come back in. 
but there, there there are there are broadcasters. Or well, there are commentators. I wouldn't then consider broadcasters who who love the sound of their own voice mm-hmm. and just keep going and going and going and going. Give it a give it a rest. Can't do it on the radio. You've got to keep going. But television, just at times, a little bit of silence can work wonders. Absolutely, totally agree. Okay, so we'll, we'll jump back into the magazine, and um, we're on page sixteen. So this is Ray. Ray Daly goes worldwide. This is normally Keir Radnich, so it was quite un, quite a um, surprise to see Roy Daly. Sorry, Roy Daly goes worldwide. A few, it's a few little articles and news items from around Europe or around the world. Uh, the one I'm just going to pick out here is Heisen, come and get me. And it's Man United manager Alex Ferguson has been given a boost in his quest to land the brilliant Swedish defender Glenn Heisen. Heisen has said, I would love to play in England, particularly for such a great club as Manchester United. And Fergie has chased Heisen ever since he inspired Gothenburg to victory over Aberdeen in the European Cup in 1986. But he turned them down a year later after helping his team triumph over Dundee United in the UEFA Cup, opting instead to sign Fiorentina. He says, there is a big difference in the money, but when I have enough to provide for my family, maybe I can play in England. Perhaps next year if Man United are still interested. The should say that Fergie could face opposition from Rangers boss Graham Souness, who is also a fan. And they say Chelsea may also come into play as Heisen is a self-confessed Blues fan. He's touting himself for Man United, but he's, he's a Blues fan. That was different days because I guess back then Chelsea weren't quite the, the same team that they are now. But just a spoiler on Heisen, he would actually sign for Liverpool where he would spend three seasons playing 72 league games before moving back to Sweden. He had, in fact, been invited over to Old Trafford and all but sealed a deal before returning to Italy. And Martin Edwards had told Fergie that they had shaken hands on the deal before it stalled over the transfer fee. Edwards and Ferguson flew over to Italy to complete the deal in person, only to be met and told by the player's agent that he had signed for Liverpool a couple of days previously. I can just yeah, I can just imagine what Ferguson oh. in particular would have made of that. How red would his face have gone in that situation? So also on this page is the quarterfinals draw of the European tournaments just up the top there. Most interestingly, there is the first one in the UEFA Cup, Hearts versus Bayern Munich, which we'll look at in just a little bit more time. But yeah, Heisen is making all the noises. Brilliant man, you know, man United great, but then he moved to Liverpool. And that was, I cannot, yeah, Edwards and Ferguson, the fact that they've flown out there. And again, I guess it's back to the, you know, the lack of communication, the ability to do communication in those days maybe has, has resulted in this. But yeah, Fergie would have been raging. Okay, so from that, we're going to move on to pages 18 and 23. Now, I'd say 18 and 23, this is a difficult one to look at like that because... Pages 18 and 23 are the left and right of the Hearts team photo. And it's very, very strange that they've an insert in between the two sides. So obviously they're expecting for the next four pages that are in between the two sides, they're expecting whoever's bought the magazine to pull those out and then, you know, pull out the, the team photo and put it on the wall. We'll look at the Hearts team photo. Actually, just on, on this thing it's in between first, it's called Hoot. And we have looked at these a couple of times. It's When I was talking earlier on about how it started becoming something more geared towards kids, I think this section sort of 
is the start of it. It's it's more, you know, kids play filling things in. When you've got photographs of pandas, then you know, dress up pandas, then you know you're dealing with young kids things. Um, but as I say, we'll look at the Hearts team photo, and it's basically it's a it's a wash with great names: Eamon Bannon, Craig Levine, Dave McPherson, Andy McLaren, Mike Galloway, Tosh McKinley. Scott Crabb, Sandy Clark, Henry Smith, Brian Whitaker, Ian Ferguson, John Robertson, Gary McKay, Walter Smith, John Cahoon, I have missed some out, but also there's Walter Borthwick and manager Alex McDonald. Some absolutely fantastic names. Now, as we, we spoke about on the front page, the heart kit is a buckter, but but the, as we said, the logo's not the logo that we'd be familiar with. The kit itself is a bit of a classic look with like two-tone diagonal checks, and piping down the shoulders, joining the body and the arms. The collar is a crossover V-neck design as well with maroon and white stripes. And the sponsor is Novaphone. The badge is a heart Mid Midlothian crest. It's got the club name and text above it as well. It's sort of from a distance. It looks as though it's maybe one of these commemorative kits, you know, like Scottish Cup final winners or something like that. But it's the name of the, the club. Now, the shorts, as we said, the, the, the white and maroon sort of bands down the sides and the socks are plain maroon with the three white stripes at the top as well. And Walter and Alex are both wearing tracksuits, maroon bottoms with maroon, white and grey tops and a roll collar as well. Absolute classics. Now, I've looked a little bit more closely, so looking at the Buckter logo again, there seems to be two different sets of strips here. So you have ones with the the Buckter logo and a sort of V underneath it, and then there's other ones that doesn't have the V. So you know, can you see that? Yeah, if you actually look, the the best one to look at is Ian Jordan standing next to Sandy Clark because Sandy's. I think there's three different types of jerseys here, mm -hmm. uh, because if you look at Ian Jordan, you've got the logo that does not have the little chevrons underneath, mm -hmm. uh, whereas Sandy Clark does yep. if you look at the position of sandy's badge it's slightly higher up the chest mm -hmm. and not sitting on the sponsor's logo uh, which i think i i've got the thorn security version of of this of the buckter strip so that you know and i, I recognize that's probably more the badge placement slightly higher up if you then look at john robertson in the front he has got the two chevrons underneath the logo but the badge is sitting on the sponsor's logo so to, to me, I think there's, there's almost three or it looks like, you know, three different styles yeah. in there. Uh, you know, Neil Berry, I don't think, has got the chevrons underneath, whereas Craig Levine next to him does. It's, it's one of these bizarre things. And you, you wonder about the kit men at the time, you know, was it different batches of shirts and they run out of shirts? I mean, players never gave shirts away in the same way as, as they do now. You know, yeah. and they've got hundreds of them waiting for them. I mean, if you gave the shirt away, you had to pay for it. If you look at Walter Kidd um, and look at the location again, it's probably more similar to Ian Jordan's one. The the, the Buckter logo looks really high up yeah. compared to the badge. So it, it's it's not the best in terms of, of getting yeah. uniformity in what is a uniform. And the shirt's a different tone of maroon. They, they look at it as well. You know, Sandy yeah. certainly looks at it a touch darker. Yeah. Um, the Dean Jersey, and it, it's the slightly darker one that I that I would remember. So I think if you look at like, so we'll take Scott Crab and Kenny Black there as examples. The Scott Crab one is, as I mentioned, it's a two tone sort of check, 
but the Kenny Black one, I don't think that is. I think that's just plain. So I think there is a difference. One is a check, mm. two tone, and the other one isn't. It's very strange, isn't it? I'm I'm just actually clicking back up to see what Kenny's wearing on the front cover. Mm. Uh, but it, it, he's turned in such a way you can't see the front of the the jersey. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I know Jimmy Sanderson um, reasonably well. I must ask Jimmy mm-hmm. when I next see him about this. Because, again, he's standing next to Wayne Foster and they are two f- different football jerseys. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. So the, the picture that it says it's taken exclusively for shoots. So I don't know if that because so I guess this wouldn't have been a pre-season photograph. It's maybe been sort of hastily arranged, mm-hmm. kind of thing, which maybe kind of explains why the kits are slightly ill-matching. That's a really good. That's a really good point. I mean, you look at the pitch as well. The pitch has got a bit of a, a wear to it there as well, hasn't it? What I love about that, we, we we have found quite a few team photos like this. At first look, you you look at it and it's like right, okay. You don't think anything, but when you start looking in a little bit closer, and what I would actually say, just another point on the the logos without the V underneath it, there actually looks as though there used to be a V. Yeah, there. Sort of, you know, it's so it sort of looks as if that part has came off, but for it to come off in every single one of them, I'm not sure about that. But it is, it's 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 strange to say. I mean, I I mean, it doesn't really happen now because you've got real professional guys in charge of all the kits. It very rarely happens. But, I mean, I've been at games and you're watching and thinking, he's wearing different shorts. You know, and, and that's the kind of thing I love to mention in commentary. If you're, on, if, you're, if you're on TV, you've got a lazy button which cuts your microphone to the audience and you can speak to your uh, director and your producer and you can say, you know, next time there's a break in play, can you give me, you know, St. Martin 7? Because he's wearing different shorts to the others, you know, just little things like that that, that can add to the, that can add to the fun. But you don't see it as much now because things are are better organised. Well, I'm, I'm guessing they'd probably get fined for something nowadays for things like that. If you pointed it out, and it's like, well, that's that's where we are. <laughs> Fair point. I'd probably get the blame for it as well. I get blamed for everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when your team's getting beat, it's always the commentators' fault. Um, yeah, but I mean, some of them aren't, aren't overly obvious. You know, it can be shorts that don't quite have the, you know, it could be last season shorts, for example. It might just be that the player can't find one that in his size, there might be a problem. You, you just don't know what goes on necessarily in the background. But, yeah. you know, I, I think it, it's always fascinating to watch teams. Uh, and, and certainly like this, um, I, I would have thought that not a single one of those players would have been thinking we're not all wearing the same it would have been can they get on with this quickly because we're finished for the day mm-hmm. do we want to pick out any of the players want to talk about any of the, the players or the haircuts or anything? well Jimmy Sanderson when I next see him well, he'll certainly get that one <laughs> uh, there's no doubt uh, you know that's a, it's an absolute cracker um, I think Perms went out the, in 1982. The, the Perms went out. I mean, you forget how good, you know, Brian Whitaker was as a player. If you were a Hearts fan, you know, it's a left back. He was just solid. Uh, you know, Walter Kidd at the other side. I mean, this was a really talented Hearts team. And I don't I don't know whether, you know, I mean, I'm slightly biased. I mean, I got the magazine from you, Andy, and opened it up. I mean, I wouldn't even need to look at the names yeah. to know who all these guys are. I just knew it immediately. I was immersed in this. I mean, Alan Moore's haircut is, is tremendous in itself. Yeah. But, you know, you could give me the, t- you know, the Hearts team from, say, four years ago, and I wouldn't recognise all the players because they just go through at such an exceptional rate now. Yeah. You know, you don't really get the guys who are staying for, for such long periods of time, by and large. It, it, it's just... 
great to see this group of players. I mean, Tosh McKinley, you know, went on to only capped, of course, when he went to Celtic. Uh, Alan McLaren went on to Rangers. Mike Galloway went on to Celtic. You know, this was typical of the good teams at the time. They got raided um, by other teams, but that was one hell of a hard side. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, say there is a big uh, connection with the old firm in there in terms yeah. of players and manager as well. Eamon Bannon still hanging on to whatever whatever hair's left there. Such such a nice guy, Eamon. I mean, he was harshly dealt with at Stenhouse Muir, I think, over a registration issue. Sandy Clark was one of my first co-commentators. He was my first co-com on, on television. I'd worked with him on radio before. Gary Mackay was my co-commentator at the World Cup in 2007, the, the under-20s World Cup. Uh, I've worked with John Robertson. I've worked with Craig Levine. Uh, I played at the same boys club as Scott Crabb. Uh, he was at Tynecastle Boys Club. And I, I joined Tynecastle Boys Club as a 15-year-old. I was there two weeks and realised I was never going to be a footballer because of Scott Crabb. He was just mm. unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it. Him and Brian Welsh were the two the two guys at Tynecastle. And I knew at the time that, you know, I would never make it because they were just streets ahead I thought it was decent because let's be honest we all think we're decent mm-hmm. um, but making that step up I mean Scott Crabb was just one of the most outstanding people I've ever been on a field with um, so I, I just knew I was never going to make it Craig Levine's had a hard time in recent times you know from Hearts fans Craig is a very serious guy he's a very witty guy I've always found him good I've worked a few times with Craig as a co-commentator he reads the game beautifully he's got a nice turn of phrase um, I, you know, I like him. People say, oh, he's done this, he's done that. You know, sometimes you've got to separate people out. You know, we, we don't all get it right all the time. And, and I'm sure Craig would admit that he didn't get everything right, but it doesn't, it doesn't make you a bad person, you know. And, and I got to meet and interview my hero, Henry Smith, mm. because I worked for the BBC. I was gobsmacked. And I, I mentioned something to him, and he said, do you, do you play in goals? I said, well, I can only play in five playing goals and fives because I'm too small. So and he started to ask me, you know, what do I like about it? You know, what I find, you know, positioning wise and stuff. He was just brilliant to talk to. Mm. He, he had a little spell at Clydebank, didn't he, Tom? He played quite a few games at Clydebank, actually. Yeah. Right yeah. at the end of his career. Yeah. But I mean, he, he was, I mean, the word character is overused, but Henry was a character. You know, he did engage with supporters. He didn't always have it all his own way. I mean, he got dropped a couple of times, you know, famously for Nicky Walker. Um, you know, he battled off John Bruff to, to, to get the gig at Hearts. Uh, you know, he was just, and, th- and then he followed in the great tradition of these the, the top goalkeepers in the world by becoming a postman. Mm-hmm. But my, my brother Paul, who you know, Tom, talks about, uh, there was, it was a Clyde Bank game, actually. I, th- I think it was an evening game, but I remember we were outside Yuka Bowie and the coach with Hearts passed by. I think Paul waved or something and Henry Smith was the one that waved back to him. So ever since then, I think he's had a bit of a soft spot for him. So, yeah, well done. We come back to that all the time about just the little things that these players do that, not just players, but, you know, famous people, people that other people look up to. All you have to do is a little thing and it means so much to individuals. That's why we we talk, you know, we, we get annoyed when you see modern footballers walking down off the bus with their, their headphones on just ignoring people and things like that and it's just like all it takes is just a little wave a photograph a signature and you, you know you've made that memory for that person for the rest of their life it's you know so things like that Henry Smith there has made a memory for, for my brother so thank you Henry 
Okay, so we're going to jump onto pages 24 and 25, and we're getting to the real, the real meat of the magazine here. So this is the UEFA Cup quarterfinal special, and it's Hearts versus Bayern Munich. And the title says, Underdogs Bite Back. And it's, the Germans don't rate us, but they aren't invincible, says Sandy Clark. It will be a very much a case of the lull before the storm as Hearts prepare for their biggest ever European assignment. Player coach Sandy Clark says, We intend to be as thorough as possible with our preparation. It's essential our minds are concentrated on the game. Getting away from it all is a major part of our strategy. The lads will be together for a couple of days without being pestered and the importance of the occasion is not going to be lost on any of them. Now Clark has seen them twice and knows exactly what they will be up against. He says, We know our task is going to be difficult, but there's no way we consider them invincible. Hearts will have Tosh McKinley, Craig Levine and John Robertson in the squad, none of whom played in the earlier European rounds. Brian Whitaker is ruled out with a broken leg and Clark himself faces a battle against the clock to prove his fitness, having snapped his Achilles tendon five months previously. He accepts Hearts are underdogs but hopes that they continue to surprise people. He says, I read somewhere that Bayern Munich rated this as the worst of all the Scottish teams in Europe this season. And if you consider their league position, maybe they're not too far off the mark. Clark says that the fans must be patient and says they will be like a 12th man. And some of the men- names mentioned for Bayern include Olaf Ton, who's a record 1.4 million signing from Schalke. Klaus Ogenthaler and Hans Flugler are also a couple of names mentioned as well. I don't know what my, my pronunciation of German names are, but let's hope that was close. It's Pretty a- good. Yeah, good. <laughs> Hearts are set to scoop a £500,000 jackpot from the Tynecastle game from gate money, TV fees and advertising. Now, Wallace Mercer originally threatened to switch the game to a bigger venue and defends his ticket prices, which were £20 for the best seats and £10 for standing. And Mercer says, we must ensure that we make a reasonable profit. If people don't want to pay our prices, they don't have to come to the game. Now, they say that Bayern are slashing prices for the return game. Bayern say we will be charging half the normal price because Hearts are not a top European name they're really digging it in about Hearts aren't they now, the the road to get where they were Hearts beat St Patrick's 4-0 over two two games in the first round then beat Austria Vienna 1-0 they then beat Vélez Mostar which is from Bosnia and Herzegovina 4-2 over two legs and in those games Mikey Galloway has scored four of Hearts goals so far so there's another... Well, actually, before we go into the John Cahoon one, let's just pick apart the the Sandy Clark thing there. So, as I said, the Germans, they're not too um, they're diplomatic with their, their comments, saying that they're the worst of all the Scottish teams in Europe. But I think it was nice that Sandy had a little a little laugh about it and says, well, actually, if you consider where we are in the league, maybe, maybe that's a fair enough one. And then the Wallace Mercer given a pretty much a like if you don't like it don't bother coming 20 pounds for seats and 10 pounds for standing now 1989 that's still a good whack that isn't it looking back at that i mean that is <laughs> that's quite a hefty hefty sum of money back back in 89 what i like about the the germans is and, and what i'd like to see more in football is is, is honesty now <laughs> i get the counter argument that you don't want to give teams and 
ammunition and things like that. But that's not the German mentality. Now, they obviously thought they were much better than Hearts um, and perhaps came to the game a little bit overconfident. But they didn't realise how good that Hearts side was. Mm. They, they, they were good players, but they were a good side. You know, they, they'd been moulded together. They played together. They understood how to, you know... To play games like this, I mean, that result in Vienna where, you know, Mikey Galloway scored, that was a big result for Hearts. You know, they always, I think they then fancied their chances against Mostar. Um, so, it, and it's interesting, that, you know, they, they, they did make a lot of money out of it. And that was the chance to do so. And, and Bayern will be honest. And again, I see, I, I see a sign of honesty. We're going to struggle to sell tickets for this team called Hearts that nobody's really quite sure who they are. Well, they would have shifted a few more. Um, after getting beat one nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the the next article that's on the other page is John Cohoon. He he basically gives a guide to it says a guide to Britain's European survivors. So he takes a look at his teammates and gives his thoughts on them. So I'm going to pick out a few of them. So on Henry Smith, he says a word of warning: never play cards with H. I can never recall him losing. He's a former miner, which probably explains why he has hands like shovels. And on Walter Kidd, he says, he's something of a snappy dresser. He's always the first to borrow the iron when we stay at a hotel. We can't decide whether Walter, Eamon Barnon or Sandy Clark has the least amount of hair. On Craig Levine, he says, he was christened shoes by Jimmy Bowen when he was at the club. Apparently, he turned up one day wearing a pair of platform shoes and the nickname has stuck ever since. I think I may have seen that actually in a focus on with Craig Levine, nicknamed Shoes. So it's, it's, good, it's good to know where they originated from. On Gary Mackay, he said, he runs a pub near Tynecastle and has been appointed social convener to organise our occasional soirees. At Christmas, he has made his all turn up and fancy dress at an Italian restaurant in the middle of Edinburgh. And Ian Ferguson, he says, he must have more suits in his wardrobe than Jonathan Ross and he is an easy winner in the Tynecastle fashion stakes. And Kenny Black, he says, out in his own is a joker of the pack. You never know what he's going to do next, and some of his crazy antics are legendary. On John Robertson, he says, he answers to several nicknames, but one that sums him up best of all is C-Fax. Robbo loves a story and never misses out any details. On Sandy Clark, he says, undoubtedly the worst singer at the club. His party piece is Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco, but Sandy's version has to be heard to be believed. And Wayne Foster, they said, the man is a walking form book who seems to know more about horses than Peter O'Sullivan. And on John Cohoon himself, he says, he's suave, sophisticated and extremely modest. He said, the lads take the mickey out of my famous black duffel bag that contains all my odds and ends. Items like my personal stereo and copy of The Independent. I don't know if he's joking about that. He said, I'm also very conservation conscious and keep telling them to use roll-on deodorants rather than sprays to protect the ozone layer. I sometimes wonder if I'm wasting my time. That's that's a nice that's a nice wee um, section from Joe Cohen there. I think he's, he's summed up a few of them probably better than they, they would have wanted to be summed up, I'm guessing. But that, that was the kind of detail that you never got anywhere else but in a, in a shoot magazine. Mm. You know, that little insight from the player's you know, on their on their fellow players. That was one of the joys of reading these things. And you know, one of the things was it, it never mattered what team it was. Really, did something like that. I would read them all. 
because you, you would have an interest because these were professional footballers. They, they were doing a job that everybody wanted to do. Um, so it didn't matter whether it was, you know, Hartman Lothian or Preston North End. You wanted to read about the individuals. And that was always a great way of doing it. Mm. The the one about Wayne, Wayne Foster, I mean, that's obviously changed days now, isn't it? He's a walking form book. That's all changed now, isn't it? About betting and gambling. Now I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to surprise Tom again here by there's a cartoon at the top by Hubbard. Oh, yeah. Hubbard, I think it is. And so there's a Scottish guy who he's obviously Scottish because he's dressed in a kilt and other Scottish attire, and he's working a projector while a couple of other guys sit down to watch. It looks as though they're in a bit of a huff. There's also an England flag on the wall, which will be important. But there's a woman coming through the living room door with a tray with tea, and she says, I think it's very nice of Uncle Jock to bring the films of his adventures following his teams in Europe. So that that's I just thought that was pretty good, sort of um, having a wee bit of a uh, Mickey take of the English teams in Europe that season. Now, a spoiler, as we've briefly mentioned there on the Hearts game, Hearts beat Bayern 1-0 at Tynecastle in front of over 26,000 fans, a goal from Ian Ferguson. However, sadly, they they lost the return leg two 0 um, Did you would you have went to this game? Would you have watched it? Well, well, what was interesting? I mean, if you take the return first of all, the return wasn't live on telly, which is just incomprehensible um, these days. But it wasn't live on telly. I listened to it on the radio. I think Archie McPherson got sent out by Radio Fourth to cover it. If if my memory serves me correctly, Archie, I think had left the BBC by that point. The Edinburgh Hospital Broadcasting Service, where I started, I joined them after I left the BBs, uh, sort of age 16, 17. Uh, Edinburgh Hospital Broadcasting Service broadcast out of uh, Hanover Street in Edinburgh. It had started as providing football commentary from hips and hearts to patients in Edinburgh hospitals in the early 50s. Now, I got there to hospital radio and there was a couple of other guys that were really into to football. So we, we looked at trying to get back into Tynecastle to see if we could do you know coverage of the games on hospital radio. Um, and that's what we did. We, we started to organise all that. Our first game ever on the relaunched football service from hospital radio was Hearts Against Bayern Munich. I did the commentary with a guy called Ronnie Allen, now sadly passed, but Ronnie had worked uh, with the BBC, um, you know, along the likes of, you know, Gordon Hewitt um, and people like that on the sort of results programme. And uh, Mark Scott, who went on to, to take the name Mark McKenzie um, to broadcast on Radio 4. That was our first game back. I watched this game from above the old pie stand at Tynecastle at the Gorgie Road end. And it was just an incredible night. Yeah. Just an utterly incredible night to, to watch Hearts beat Bayern Munich. We were directly you know it was the far end that the free kick went in but we were right behind it if you like and just watching Ian Ferguson hit that free kick I think Ronnie was on the commentary at that point it was just a, a marvellous moment Tynecastle just you know went crazy something about the, the European nights uh, in Scottish football for us anyway okay Celtic have them now Rangers have them again but it's just something about those old nights the Aberdeen the Dundee United the Hearts and things and I just it's magical. I I I remember listening to a lot of the games, as you say, on the radio as well, and I, I sort of I miss that. I miss that. Um, you know, the fact that watching it on the TV is different, but I miss listening to the radio because you can just go into your room, you can put the light off, 
and you can just listen to it and you just get absolutely absorbed by it, which doesn't really happen on the TV. And as I say, I, I do, I miss that. Maybe maybe I should find a radio station that, that still does that sort of thing. I mean, you know, pro- progress gets us all, you know, and we have that sort of slightly misty idea. And that youth, I mean, I used to listen to a lot of the games simply because A, they weren't on TV, or B, it was past my bedtime. So, you know, I, I had to listen, you know, with, with it, the radio under the pillow, little white earpiece that you used to get that yeah. was about three times the size of your ear. You know, it was the most uncomfortable thing ever. But the, 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 there was a joy to that. It was sort of crackly lines you would get if the, if the guys were abroad. And, yeah, I accept technology has, has changed everything. I mean, I get to watch every baseball game of my favourite team in the States on a, you know, an eight-inch tablet. Here in the UK, 30 years ago, you know, you'd be lucky to get a, a crackly radio signal from the Armed Forces Radio in Germany to allow you to listen to the odd game. So technology has changed things. I think we look back, I think quite rightly, with a sense of romanticism. I think all too often now we're watching football. We've got the tablet open. We've got the phone on Twitter. We're doing stuff. We're not actually absorbing ourselves in the game as we used to do. Absolutely agree with that. Sometimes it's like you find you find you end up not actually watching the game because you you're just figuring out you know trying to see what other people are saying about the game, and it's like yeah. I'll just switch it all off and watch it, and you know the, occasionally those sort of games do happen. Where and I think it's strange, maybe it's not as strange as I think, but you know after these sort of games where you're transfixed, you immediately think actually what well, I've, I've not checked my twitter or my facebook for that entire game you know that that just backs up what you're saying it's a sign of the times that we do you know that it should be the norm to, to watch something and not have to get um what's the word to get well, distracted distracted, you, get distracted. Yeah. you know you, you you want to buy in and, that, and that's why i think going to football has become quite popular again because you don't tend to stand with your phone in your hand when you've actually got the action right in front of you. Um, so I, th- I think that there's a popular, that you know, there, there is that bonding experience. So I think that the experience of broadcasting and watching football in broadcasting terms now is different. But so is going to the games. You know, you get much better facilities. You know, you usually get a bit more space. You've got your seat. There can be an atmosphere for the, you know, for the bigger nights. So it's a different experience rather than sort of being huddled in, crushed. You know, you were never sure whether you were going to be able to to actually see the game. Yeah. You know, you know, at five foot six, you just needed some idiot to come in. So thirty seconds for a kickoff and stand in front of you, and you were screwed. So I mean, the, the way in which you watch games has changed both on television and in the grounds. And you know that that's progress. But yeah, the, the, I think we always like to be slightly romantic about um, our, our our days gone by, and these weird days gone by. I mean, as I say, if I'd said I've got you know two boys, say you know, well, Hearts beat Bayern Munich one nil in the game at Tynecastle, and then I had to listen to the second leg on the radio because it wasn't on the telly, and they sort of look at you and go, "But it was a European quarter final. Yeah. Hearts are one nil up against one of the biggest teams in Europe. It wasn't on telly." People don't get that. Yeah. Okay, well, just there's a few other things here I want to jump on to. So, Greaves's letter page, page 28. So, I was actually quite impressed by Greavesy, um, or surprised. So, the star letter here is from Adam Lloyd of Spencer Place in Edinburgh. And he writes, Although Vinnie Jones must learn to control himself, the real villain of his sending off at Everton was Kevin Radcliffe. 
was hardly touched, yet went down as if he'd been shot. Now Greasy replies, Whether or not Radcliffe made a meal of it is irrelevant. Jones should have been sent off for his initial foul on Graham Sharp. Now he then goes on to tear lumps out of Jones here and he says, It's now reached the stage where he shouldn't be playing professional football because he simply isn't good enough. He thinks he's a hard man, but I don't think he has a bottle to make an honest tackle. He never goes in for a 50-50 ball. He waits until the odds are 70-30 in his favour, and that's a coward's way. One wouldn't have allowed him to get away with murder for far too long. I don't think Greaves is a fan. Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> how, how honest is it? And I think when you've played the game, you know, you've got every right to say that. Now, Jones has got the right of reply. You know, obviously not within the letters page. You know, you, you know, if that was now brought to his attention, something like that would now be all over Twitter. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas Greavesy knew it was going in the shoot. But you know, now somebody goes, "Oh, did you see what he said?" That would be on Twitter, flood social media. You know, Vinnie Jones would get involved and in, in all that. So, you know, whether somebody of a similar ilk to, to, to Greaves would say that nowadays, I suppose you look at like say Chris Sutton, a bit controversial, Michael Stewart. They say what they believe to me as long as they're believing what they're saying and not doing it for impact yeah you know the player the player's got right to reply you know people ask me often you know when you when you spoke to that manager why didn't you ask him this or why didn't you? i said because they'd never speak to me again mm-hmm. and it's not a case of you you've got to do the job in a professional way uh when you're asking a question because, as I say, people just won't talk to you again. They've they've got the power as far as that's concerned. Or they'll talk to you again and never give you another answer that is ever going to be of interest again. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a gap. Whereas, to me, former players, you know, they've got the right to have a go, but they've got to expect somebody to have a go back if that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely... He's, um, he's, he's not pulled any punches in that one. Now, across the page, here is a Stoke City team photo. I just want to have a quick look at some of, the, so some of the players in here. Simon Stainrod, second from the left in the middle row, but he, he says in the, the name bit that he's now with Strasbourg. Peter Begray is at the front. He went on to play for Everton. And on the far right at the front is Chris Kamara, uh, just sitting right at the very end there, and manager Mick Mills. So it's just nice to pick out some of those sort of players from there. And the, the, the kit was by Admiral, yep. and it's a beautiful beautiful Stoke City kit that's clean it's crisp it's just you know if I was a Stoke City fan that's certainly a jersey I'd like in my collection mm-hmm. yeah I, I will agree with that yeah. as well so on to pages 32 and 33 there's just a couple of little stories we're going to pick out here it says Billy Kirkwood Dundee utility man Billy Kirkwood has been ruled out for the rest of the season after tearing his stomach muscles recently uh, another little story is O'Neill blocked. So Newcastle have blocked the sale of striker Michael O'Neill to Sunderland after a fee of £200,000 was agreed. O'Neill says, I've also been told Celtic and Hibs have been looking at me. I don't know if I'm coming or going, but now it seems like I'm staying at St James's Park and I will do everything to keep uh, Newcastle in the first division. So as a spoiler, O'Neill would move to Dundee United in August of 1989 for 350000 Though you'd eventually moved to Hibs in 1993. And Liverpool eyes Scots duo. There's a little just in the bottom there. So Liverpool are considering a double move for promising Stranraer defenders Graham Hay and Alan Ewing. 
Kenny Douglas has already spoken to Stranra boss Alex McInespy about the duo and has had them both checked out by Chief Scout Ron Yates. McInespy reports, For my money, he is the best fullback in Scotland. Don't forget I played with Steve Nicol at United and I think he is a better player. Centre-half Ewing has only been at Stranra for two months after joining them from Beath Juniors. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? That even been mentioned. They've been looked at. Ron Yeats, you know, a bit of a Liverpool legend there as well. A good Scottish player as well. But the fact that two players from Stranra have been mentioned is just amazing. Now, I will give a little spoiler. Graham moved to Falkirk later that season where he played 25 league games before moving on to Stirling Albion, had a spell at Clyde Bank, Airdrie, and then finished back at Stranra. He actually played in the 1995 Scottish Cup final for Airdrie when they lost 1-0 to Celtic. I think that was Pierre Van Hoydonk that scored that goal. Yep. Was that that one? Yeah. Now, Alan moved to Coleraine in Northern Ireland in 1992 after 68 league appearances and seven goals at Stranra. So they didn't get their move to Liverpool after all. But you could argue Graham did play at Anfield, so... <laughs> yeah, good, good, good point. Uh, Rangers go for red rats is another little article here. Rangers looking to solve their left-back problem are looking at Vasily Rats from Dynamo Kiev, who was closely linked with Celtic earlier in the season. A deal with Espanyol fell through, leaving Sunis ready to pounce. Well, I think, as we know, I don't think he came to Rangers, did he? Page 35, I'm going to jump to, is Spotlight on Ali McCoist. So it's a shoot profile, Ali McCoist, and ask him a number of questions. So it's not it's not really a focus on, although I haven't seen a focus on in here, so maybe it's a, a different version, but it, it seems a bit chunkier and a bit more wordier than your standard focus ons. But we'll, we'll have, a, have a look through it anyway. So they ask him, how would you assess your season so far? So Ali says, on form, it's been okay, but an absolute nightmare injury-wise. The question is, have you been disappointed with your goal tally this season? So Ali replies, having scored 31, 33 and 27 goals in the last three seasons, it's difficult to come to terms. I've only scored about a half a dozen in the league so far. My only consolation is that I got two important goals in the Skull Cup final. They ask him, did you manage to remain your usual cheerful self during your layoff? Ali says, most of the time, there wasn't much point moping around the place just because of an injury. And here, here's a question for, that they ask, are you the joker in the pack? He says, I suppose you could say that, although just lately most of the jokes seem to be on me. I've played pranks on most of the lads in my time, especially David Cooper, but they've started to backfire on me. Only recently he caught me with the old deep heat in the underpants trick. And I'm sure there are more to come. So I wonder if um, Davies maybe got one of those Radian B's for 75 pence or is <laughs> he's won the competition, maybe. So on to pages 38 and 39. And it's it's Dawn's made me grow up. So this is Charlie Nicholas at Aberdeen. And he says, and now I'll prove my doubters wrong. So the article is over two pages here. And it starts off, Charlie is back. And now the born-again striker has two targets for 1989. One is to help Scotland with their fifth consecutive World Cup finals and the other is to win the Shoot Adidas Golden Shoes Award for the Scottish Premier Division. Now, the Prince of Pataudry is back among the goals and enjoying the Aberdeen high life after four wasted years at Arsenal where he won headlines but precious little else. Now, Charlie says, I'm very happy with my current form. I haven't played this consistently for a long time, certainly not since I left Celtic. 
Now he puts his success down to being more mature and settled in Scotland. He says, People say it's easy for me to play in the Scottish Premier League because I can just get by on my natural ability. But I have come to realise I can't rely on skill alone. I have to take on the workmanlike and physical aspects of the British game if I'm going to make anything of my career. But Charlie missed the early part of his season while he was still getting his fitness levels and then, through injury, missing 15 games in all, which makes his appearances amongst the top scorers all the more surprising or impressive. At present, he scored 11 league goals, just one less than Celtic's Frank McAvenny and Mark McGee. He says, A lot of people wrote me off when I came to Aberdeen saying I'd never get my old sharpness back. I haven't really had a settled partner at Aberdeen this season, but I've enjoyed playing with young Paul Wright. Charlie predicts new signing Wim van der Ark will pose all sorts of problems. He says he's a typical European with all the technique, but he's also a big lad who puts himself about. Now, Scotland coach Andy Roxburgh said about Charlie, Charlie is the most gifted player I have worked with. That's fair praise, that. And Charlie says about Scotland, competition for places in the Scotland attack has never been fiercer, with McAvenny, McCoist, Sharp and Jury all vying for a place. Mo Johnson is the main man in form at the moment, and he's probably first choice. The rest of us are all chasing one place. And Charlie would love to get Scotland to the World Cup in Italy, and thinks he would do himself justice there after his experience with Arsenal, and now with Aberdeen. Now, the spoiler is he won the last of his 20 senior caps for Scotland on the 26th of April that year, in a 2-1 win over Cyprus, but he never made the 1990 World Cup. Charlie Nicholas... What a player. I'm a big fan of Charlie. I like Charlie as a... I like I liked him as a player. I liked him as a pundit. I just... I, I liked him. He comes across really well. Did, did you root for him at Arsenal? I mean, I just wanted him to do so much better. Hmm. And, you know, it'd be interesting to get his, his own take on that. But you just thought it was a great move to a great club. You know, playing in a terrific stadium. Just wanted him to do well. And... You know, whether it was the high life, whether it was just thinking he'd made it, I, I don't know. Um, Ch- Charlie started some of his early broadcast stuff on Radio Scotland right about the time that I, I joined. I remember I didn't actually work directly with him. I think it was pitch side for a couple of games that he did. And you could tell he had the, the gallusness on air, um, you know, to, to play that cheeky chappy role, if you like. And and he, he's gone on to, to do it really well. You can't. Can't argue with that. Mm. Have his autobiography here uh, that he wrote uh, while he was with Arsenal. Celtic don't come out of it very well at that time. That's interesting because you know you you just associate. I mean, if it ended badly at Celtic, perhaps he didn't want to be, you know, in London with Arsenal. It might just not have been his choice. I mean, Celtic were, you know, a, a well-known Scottish club. If that's where he wanted to play, and I mean that in the, in the European stage as well, it might have just been what he wanted to do, but. I just always wanted him to do a little bit better at Arsenal. I think yeah. he was linked with Liverpool before the Arsenal, wasn't he? And I think that yeah, probably yeah. would have suited him a bit more lifestyle-wise in terms yeah, of yeah. letting him concentrate on the football. Maybe just London was the same, you know, with Frank McAvenny and others who get, you know, I'm going back a bit, Peter Marinello, players like that, who just get caught up in the whole bright lights and things of, of London. I mean, what Nicholas's reasoning was for not going to Liverpool was, was he, he knew Dalglish... Although I think Dalglish had told him he would move into midfield, uh, he knew Dalglish was a few years away from retirement and he knew Ian Rush was there. 
So he just felt he wasn't going to get first team. He wasn't going to be the first choice every week. Well, hmm. what, what I find in, in the article there is they said four wasted years at Arsenal, and you you wouldn't think that now with the the relationship he seems to have with Arsenal fans. Yeah, and... well, this is the thing. He says he goes back and says that was his his favourite club. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, he, he didn't. He didn't do what was expected. Yeah, I think we all expected him to go down there and really light up the English first division, but it didn't quite didn't quite happen like that. Although I think the Arsenal fans all liked him. Mm-hmm. I think he was well appreciated down there. Yeah. Okay. So we've actually got to the end of the the magazine. So what we're going to do? So we in the podcast, what we do is we we team up with our charity partner and we we try and. You know, get them exposure, get people to follow them, get involved, donations if possible. So I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit out about who our charity partner is at the moment, and it's the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. So this is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including some of the following: a school uniform bank, a school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. So they provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families. And we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money, support in the form of volunteers. We'll also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. We'll hear a lot more about the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share in a future podcast and we do hope to get Claire Coyle onto the show from the, the Food Share group to discuss the work that they do and how we can support them. You can follow them on the West Dumbartonshire, that's D-U-N-B-A-R-T-O-N-S-H-I-R-E Community Food Share group on Facebook or on the West Dumbartonshire communityfoodshare.co.uk a nice mouthful that one but also if you want to keep an eye on our twitter accounts at shoot tb underscore podcast and scotch footy cards for updates then we will we'll keep people updated on that on that paul what we do is for each episode we, we try and put a goodie bag together and it will include the the magazine that we've, the original magazine that we've discussed as well and we'll throw in other goodies and things as well, such as, you know, I'll, I'll put in some cards, stickers and other magazines from a collection. If there's anything that you could throw in from yourself, maybe something signed from the from the past or something like that, that'd be greatly appreciated, but in, anything at all. So what we do with, with that is people listening, they, they, if for every pound that they donate, it gives them like a virtual raffle ticket. And at the end of the season, we'll draw it and whoever wins it gets a goodie bag from that other people would just like to thank i'd like to thank pete wiley of the mighty wah for the story of the blues which is the music for the show brilliant song by brilliant song by the way one of my favorites love it i i, I couldn't agree more it's like every time i listen to it it just i, I think I, I i like it more every time that i listen to it so you can catch up with pete on petewiley.co.uk We'd also like to thank a producer, Diane Jardin, who has uh, recording and rehearsal facilities in Clyde Bank, and that's transmissionroom, all one word, .co.uk. And I would absolutely recommend, if you need any recording, rehearsal facilities, and you're in that area, please give Diane a, a call. Regarding yourself, Paul, how, how's the lockdown treating you? What have you got on the, the horizons? Anything happening? 
the lockdown's been uh, tough for a football commentator. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've done a couple of small bits um, of football work, but no more than that. I've done a couple of thought for the days on Radio Scotland, and that's been pretty much it. I mean, I'm normally quiet in July. Anyway, I'm normally away on holiday in July, coming back, you know, hopefully getting into the League Cup and European games. Of course, it's different this year. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the Scottish League kicks off again on the 1st of August, and I'm, I'm hopeful to be part of the BBC coverage, as I have been for a number of years now, um, because I, I love what I do. You know, I'm just hoping for a good, busy season. I'd like to see Scotland successful. Um, you know, it'd be nice to qualify for something at some point. Uh, but yeah, I just want to see us get back. I want to see get fans getting back into the stadiums. I want to see it done safely. But, you know, I'd like to see it done because, you know, we, I think if anything that this has proved that fans are vital to our game. I mean, if you watch the games with just the players' noise, it, it doesn't work. The artificial fan noise doesn't work. You can put in cardboard cutouts. You can put out flashing screens. You can do anything you want. Nothing will replace fans going to games. And I think we probably will appreciate that more than ever yeah. when it happens. And I, I can't wait to get back in the football ground. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested because I think you, you you took up rugby refereeing. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I would um, take up rugby refereeing. So I, I did the course because I wanted to do uh, rugby commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I've been aware of, uh, I read a book by Scott Adams, the Dilbert cartoonist. He talks about your talent stack. Now, this is an industry that you're either in or you're out. It's very difficult uh, to break in. Uh, if you lose a gig, it's very hard to replace it. So I took a conscious decision a few years ago to expand what I would class as my talent stack. So, you know, I can do football, I can do rugby, I do bowls, that's my main three sports. I, you know, in Radio Scotland does shinty, I do shinty, I've done ice hockey, I've done like, nine sports or something like that on the BBC. So I've tried to make myself useful yeah. uh, and be able to come across these sports. And referee rugby, going on the course was an idea of just to, you know, to because rugby is very technical, particularly in the scrummage. Um, so I wanted to do that. And then, you know, they were good enough to, you know, let me go through the course. I thought I'd Referee, referee a few games. I'm not the world's best referee. I do try. I do enjoy it, but I'm not the world's best. It's, it's probably. I, I'm imagine it's given you a new insight into all sports. I guess not just the rugby. You know, being involved in that sort of level of it and in, in the midst of a game. Yeah, you, you start to you you remember things that you'd forgotten. You know, as as a player. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was I was a decent rugby player. I was a decent football player. But you, you tend to forget that sitting back in the stand and commentating on things. You know, it's not always easy for a player. They could have a million things on their mind. You know, just sometimes it can be one wrong decision on a field that 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 can set things wrong. You sometimes forget how easy it is to for guys to stay calm. I mean, I do a lot of schools, so sort of seventeen, eighteen year olds. You know. There's quite a lot of testosterone in, in rugby at that at that age, you know, yeah. and sometimes you just get people reacting. And it just helps you remember these things and perhaps be a bit more sympathetic to the players and sympathetic to the referees as well when they get it wrong. Mm. Most importantly, have you been enjoying it? Is it something you're going to carry on? I mean, I'll do it when I can. I mean, often I don't find out until a Thursday or a Friday where I'm going to be with the BBC, so it limits mm. my availability. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it another another season referee. Excellent, excellent. Okay, on on that note, I'd just like to say thank you to Tom for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And thank you once again, Paul, for for coming on and shooting the breeze with us. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. 
I've loved it. And honestly, going back to, to that particular year, looking at that Hearts team, looking at some of those stories, forgetting just how good a magazine shoot was. Mm. It, it's, it's been great talking to you both. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, um, thanks, Paul. And for everyone listening out there, thank you for listening to us. And as we always say, follow us on, on Twitter. You know, there's, there's a web page that will be with the podcast as well that will contain all the, the items we've spoke about in the magazine. So, you know, you can read that while you're listening back. You can share it with your friends as well. But until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>